That stirring music is by Richard Wagner. It is from his opera Lohengrin. And this uh, happens to be a recording made back in 1950 by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, led by conductor Fritz Reiner. We put on a a compact disc or we press a button on Spotify or, or Apple Music and listen to whatever strikes our fancy in that moment and do not give a second thought to the wonder of recorded sound. But one comes away with a deeper appreciation for this miracle, this man-made miracle, after reading an incredibly fascinating book titled Into the Groove, The Story of Sound from Tinfoil to Vinyl. The author of the book, Jonathan Scott, uh, a music writer with uh, a voracious interest in recordings of all kinds, including uh, recorded oddities uh, from over the years, has set down in this fascinating book the story of how human beings develop the technology of being able to record sound. And uh, he stretches that history back even before the time of Thomas Edison, who is uh, commonly and rightfully called the inventor of the phonograph. But uh, Jonathan Scott points to some who came before him who, in a sense, helped pave the way. And he takes that history then uh, into uh, the development of early recordings and ultimately 78s and ultimately into the long playing record. And uh, it is a history far more complicated than any of us would ever imagine. And uh, I so appreciate uh, the way in which he has written this history with such clarity and, and with a true sense of delight. The book is published by Bloomsbury Sigma, again titled Into the Groove, The Story of Sound from Tinfoil to Vinyl. And Jonathan Scott, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on. I'm delighted to speak with you. I should mention that uh, you are speaking to me from far off Great Britain, but... Uh, Thanks to this invention called the telephone, uh, we can have this conversation. And uh, I appreciate you making time uh, for, for this discussion of your fascinating book. Tell us, oh, first, tell us first a little bit about your own personal interest uh, in recordings and uh, if you can trace that to anything in particular. Um, yeah, sure. I, um, the first time I remember putting on records was, uh, yeah, I remember hassling my parents and just saying, please, can we listen to this, listen to this. And I remember we had a very powerful amplifier, and I wasn't allowed to touch the record player, you know, like a lot of under fives. You know, they don't mix well with vinyl. So my parents would put on a record, and I just remember it was so loud, and the crackle as they, it used to slightly scare me, frankly. But I just remember being just sort of, I just couldn't quite understand how a disc of bumpy plastic could make such amazing sounds and um and in a sense that's exactly what that was the starting point for this book in many ways in that sometimes i still i still collect records now and i still sometimes put on records and i kind of get that sort of memory of what it's like to listen to a record for the first time and to sort of just the, the wonder of, of this incredible invention, because we all take it for granted. You sort of said this in your your very um, very nice introduction, thank you. But we all take music for granted, and the whole point of the book was really to try and strip some of that away and revel in 
just how lucky we are to have music and sound totally at our control. Hmm. I'd love to have you uh, relay to our listeners uh, a brief little story from the foreword of the book. It's essentially how the book begins, and it is one Thomas Edison uh, showing a visitor around uh, his uh, laboratory uh, in Menlo Park, New Jersey. Uh, uh, describe to your listeners as best you can this this particular visit and, and in a sense, how your account of this visit ends. It's a beautiful segue into the book that follows. Yeah, well, that's right. Well, Edison was known. He, he was the kind of man that didn't suffer um, fools gladly. But if he thought, he, he loved engineers and scientists and people who he felt um, got it, so to speak. And... Um, one day, it was in the 18, late 1870s, he was showing a journalist around. He regularly had journalists, and he, would, you know, he was very good at, at, at generating columnists. And he was showing the visitor around, explaining how sound worked, how it was possible to record and reproduce sound. And the journalist kept going, oh, yes, oh, yes, and nodding his head and making notes. And Edison was sort of quite pleased. He's like, oh, yes, this man really gets it. And then the man sort of just said, well, that's all good. I just have one question. I understand it all, except how the sound gets out again. And Edison was just, his face fell. And, you know, and this, <laughs> the thing about that is that that, in a way, summarizes me. And I totally, yes, I understand that uh, a record, a plastic record is essentially a transducer, you know, that turns mechanical energy into electrical energy. I understand all that, but I still don't really understand all that. <laughs> you know, that's the thing. I still look at them and go, really? No, <laughs> surely that shouldn't work. Right. It's like and you like, can you can know a lot about it and yet, in a sense, not fully grasp it. You, yeah. <laughs> you're right. Yeah. I mean. I mean, there are parallels with lots of the lovely inventions that we all take for granted. Electricity. We all understand what electricity is, but it's still pretty amazing. Absolutely. And, um, yeah. You write, uh, the reason I love records, the thing that inspired me to write this book, is that I don't understand them either. I remain as delighted and mystified by them as when I was five years old. And I want to give you a chance to also talk about what you go on to kind of describe, and you, you kind of touched on this briefly as you first began speaking about what it was like for a record to be played in your home. And you go on then to contrast that with the way in which most of us now typically listen to music uh, in the early 21st century. Yeah, and I, I think this is, this is at the heart of what's so special about records, because yes, Back in the day, I remember the sort of the warm crackling sound as the amplifier sort of warmed up. I remember the sort of bassy rumble as the needle skipped across the, the, the groove. And I remember the sort of frightening sound as well as it skipped on the run-out groove after the music had finally stopped. But the point is, it was, it's all such a sort of, it's a, it's a lovely process. It takes time. You have to click the buttons, get the tone arm in the right place, take the vinyl out carefully, place it on it. You know, it's a lovely feeling. Now, I can... So, so there's a record I was searching for for years in the 1990s, and I can find it in a second now on, on, on Apple or, or Spotify, as you say. And it's not to say that the record is better as such, but it's just... It just it's you communing with music in a different way. A record is for when you have time 
to listen to music in in the full sense of listening to music. It's not for when you're going on a run or doing the dishes or driving. And it's wonderful that we can listen to music while doing all these things. Of course it is. But records have a special place in the heart of a lot of listeners because they are for that moment you give yourself. Mm. You know, that special moment where it's just, okay, I'm going to put this song on, but I'm going to put it on properly. Mm. <laughs> I'm going to put the record on. Exactly. I want to uh, read uh, one portion of your foreword, if, if you don't mind. You, you write no, this. Oh, there are easier ways to listen to music. I can type the title of a record into Apple Music or Spotify that took me years to track down in the mid-1990s. A few taps later, I'm listening to it again, and I've barely moved. There's nothing wrong with that, of course, but it's just different. With records, the process is slow and delightful. The switches, buttons, and knobs, the volume and tone controls, the little red light, the soft hum, the selection of the record, the removal from the sleeve, the careful placing on the turntable, speed select, click, spin. Vinyl is the format for when you have the time and will to engage with music in a deeper way. It's the format for when you're ready to immerse yourself, to kneel at the altar and just listen. It's not for when you're doing the dishes or rushing to the shops or stripping wallpaper or writing a book. Vinyl is for you. It's the moment that you give yourself a trip to the Cathedral of Sound. I really applaud you for the, all those beautiful turns of phrase and uh, and for really summing up something that most of us are just not taking the time to fully consider and appreciate. Oh, well, thank you. Honestly, it's really lovely hearing someone read it back to me. <laughs> I don't suppose you want to do my audio book because <laughs> that was really nice. <laughs> you... oh, well, thank you very much. I mean, yeah, um, that encapsulates how I feel about the whole subject. In terms of, I mean, I don't. In terms of how I originally um, started on this road, it was actually partly because my my previous book um, is called The Vinyl Frontier. That was all about the Voyager Golden Record, the strange uh, NASA record that they stuck to the side of the Voyager space probes, and that was launched in 1977. And in the aftermath of that book. I was just sort of, you know, it, much was made at the time it went, that it, was, it went in 1977, 100 years after Edison had invented the phonograph. And I think that was it. I couldn't bear to let the story of the golden record go. So I just became kind of um, interested in, 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 the, in the prequel to the golden record, you know, telling the story of how it came about originally. And, um, yeah, that, and in many ways that was the sort of starting point. You know, I'm able to let go of the story I'd, I'd enjoyed so much. Right. And I think now I better understand why chapter one of your book is titled The End, because you are talking about interesting events in the year 1977, including uh, the launch of that so-called golden record, but also an honor bestowed on, on somebody whose name will be completely unknown to just about any American, but somebody who figures prominently uh, in this century-plus story that you tell of Into the Groove. Uh, tell us what was happening at the White House in November of 1977 and who then President Jimmy Carter was greeting and honoring. Oh, well, he was, he was um, honoring um, Dr. Peter Goldmark, who was um, a Hungarian-born uh, 
engineer, really, but um, he, he was basically... Um, President Carter was um, giving a whole load of scientists. They were essentially getting a sort of medal for, uh, for, 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 you know, for, for services to science. And um, Dr. Goldmark was there specifically for the invention of the LP, i.e. the vinyl record, which was first launched in 1948. And, um, yeah, the president sort of went off script. Because there, there were people there for all sorts of you know, scientific inventions. But when when Peter Goldmark was was introduced, uh, President Carter sort of went off script and went, oh, I'm particularly grateful to you for your invention and gave him a sort of backslap because, you know, back then, of course, that was when, um, you know, vinyl was the, was the king. It was the dominant format um, in 1977. So, um, yeah, it's just a rather nice moment. It felt like, um, you know, that the... Uh, the man who really helped launch vinyl in this in in the upon the world was was thanked by President Carter. It just seemed a, a nice place to start. But of course, it's also tinged with sadness because only two weeks after that, um, uh, Peter Goldmark actually died in an automobile accident. Hmm. Um, and so, is it so it's a somber thought as well that this all happened in the same? Yeah, I mean, 1977 was such a... So many things seemed to happen in that year. You know, that was the year of peak vinyl sales in America. That was the year that uh, rumours by... Uh, <laughs> I can't believe I've forgotten who made rumours. You know who made rumours. Uh, I mental block because I'm thinking of other things that came out in 1977. Come on, who made rumours? Fleetwood Mac. Thank God. <laughs> Fleetwood Mac made rumours and uh, Meatloaf made Bad Out of Hell. It was the year of punk. You know, there was just so much going on in 1977. And that's why it just seemed such... It seemed a really interesting date to start the story and then rewind 100 years. But as you say, I actually ended up going further back in time because I felt that... Truly tell the story of how records were first made, how the groove first came into being. You kind of had to back up a little further to talk about how human beings learned to understand and experiment with sound. Hmm. We're speaking with Jonathan Scott, and we're talking about his brand new book called Into the Groove The Story of Sound from Tinfoil to Vinyl. The story uh, is essentially a century-long story uh, dating more officially from Thomas Edison's invention of the phonograph in 1877 uh, to the year 1977. But as we were just saying, it is a history that stretches uh, even further back than Edison's uh, invention. One thing you touch on early in the book is that when it comes to saying that so-and-so invented such-and-such, that that can be a really tricky matter. That, first of all, almost nobody invents something entirely on their own. Almost always somebody is building on the work of others who came before them. And, uh, and, and it can be very tricky sometimes to talk about an invention and its inventor uh, in a way in which you're being fair to everybody and fair to that inventor, but fair to those who came before without diminishing the significance of that moment of invention or final breakthrough. I really appreciate you taking a moment to kind of talk about the complexity of that uh, and, and tell us how that is especially true when it comes to somebody like Thomas Alva Edison 
and the phonograph. Yeah, you're right. It's a really interesting subject. And, um, I mean, the, the birth of the phonograph took place when Thomas Edison and his, his crack team of engineers were experimenting with te- new forms of telegraph, a kind of um, a way of taking messages by telegraph, by perforating, essentially, um, paper um, with Morse code and then being able to play that message back. And they were also experimenting with telephones. The telephone had been invented the year before, 1876, Alexander Graham Bell. And that gives us another example. That's a famous one where a number of scientists were working on very similar technology, but it was Alexander Graham Bell who, who, who got to the patent office first, shall we say. And a similar thing happens in the, in the phonograph. And in fact, when Edison's invention finally became global news at the end of 1877, um, uh, people like Alexander Graham Bell were quite, you know, were, were, were like, oh, we were so close. We, you know, how did we not think of that? <laughs> and to think that well, because they had so many brilliant minds working in similar areas. I, well, I, think, I think it's true to say that even if Edison had been, say, struck by lightning at the beginning of 1877, someone else would have come up with similar technology at around the same time. For example, there's a Frenchman called Charles Cross who I mentioned in the book, a, a lovely-sounding um, Parisian man who drank a bit too much absinthe and, 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 and died rather young. But he came up with a, a perfectly workable scientific method for recording and reproducing sound in April of 1877, but he didn't have the funds to, to make it happen. Whereas Edison, by 1877, had been successful enough that he surrounded himself with brilliant engineers and also had the money and, and reputation to see it through. Plus, Edison, from the, in all of his inventions, they didn't always work. Not all his inventions were good, but he was absolutely obsessed with a couple of things, which was utility and profitability. And that sort of obsession is what, in ways, marked him out from other inventors who might just allow themselves, he might be sort of too distracted by dreaming what they could do. He always wanted it to actually work, to actually be useful. Right. Um, I think you say it so well at one point in this chapter when you say an idea without development can end up being useless. And I think what you're saying is that Thomas Alva Edison was not only a person with ideas and, and able to to uh, build on the ideas of others, but he also had uh, a, a real flair uh, for creating the useful. I mean, and and you know, the word useful that might seem like kind of an unremarkable, kind of a mundane sort of term, but that's really when the magic happens, when an idea becomes something that is useful in our lives. I mean, that's when something really changes the world. Yeah. Exactly. And this is the thing, I, I didn't go into the book, into the research, wanting to necessarily um, delve into the life of Thomas Edison. But the more I read about it, the more, you know, just, you know, he's just, he really, he's got a reputation for a reason. And he was just an incredible, um, work, you know, workaholic who, who just had such drive for getting to a useful end result in all the things he made. Again, I stress, they weren't always successful. But the actual, the actual point of um, Eureka, as it were, is um, from July 1877, when he was 
he was actually, he, as I say, he was working on a, a new type of telephone. They'd been given quite a lot of money to come up with a non-infringing version of the telephone so they could, you know, make some money off this new invention without, you know, getting sued. And he had a diaphragm in his hand and was sort of singing into it, a telephone diaphragm, and was just singing into it or speaking into it, some people say, and feeling the way it vibrated against the palm of his hand. And he turned to his chief engineer and just said, uh, who was called Charles Batchelor, and he said, Charles, well, he actually called him Batch. Batch, if we got a point on this diaphragm and then could pull some kind of recording material beneath it as we spoke, if we pulled it back again afterwards, we'd get our speech back. And that was the starting point. And that very day, they rigged up a very basic, what uh, sound historians call it, a strip phonograph, which is essentially a mouthpiece with a diaphragm and a spike. And beneath it, you pull paraffin paper, which is paper covered in essentially wax. And in July 18th, that very day, he recorded in his laboratory notes how he'd just tried this experiment, and he wrote... Uh, uh, the speaking the speaking vibrations are indented nicely, and there's no doubt I shall be able to store up and reproduce automatically at any future time the human voice perfectly. So that was the starting point. Of course, by the end of the year, the invention had changed. It was no longer this sort of a strip phonograph design. It had become the cylindrical tin foil, as it's known, phonograph that um, became the the. I think that was launched on the world and 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 changed the world. Hmm. We're speaking with Jonathan Scott about his book Into the Groove: The Story of Sound from Tin Foil to Vinyl. Although Thomas Alva Edison indeed is properly credited as the inventor of the phonograph, as we've already touched on, there were people who came before him, and I really appreciate the fact that uh, your book does not rush through some of these other aspects of the history of recorded sound. And uh, what shocked me was that uh, your, your exploration of this goes all the way back to Galileo, uh, so centuries before Edison. But uh, it's, it's important for us to understand that there were people, uh, even as early as Galileo, who were intrigued by the nature of sound itself. And I'm sure I never, until I read your book, stopped to think about how that would be one area of scientific exploration. I mean, that people would be wondering that long ago, what is sound? <laughs> and, uh, and of course, without that curiosity in and of itself, you don't end up with Mr. Edison and the phonograph. No, it, it, exactly. And um, it was the this this sort of it, the interest in studying sound just for the sake of it that led to um, well, one of the key inventions in the story is um, is the phonograph from 1857, which was invented by a Parisian um, bookseller. And essentially, long story short, the way this worked, it looked a bit like an early phonograph. And it's just for recording sound, and it would trace the sound. You spoke into it, and it would trace the sound by um, tracing, the, like recording a line on lamp-blacked paper. So it, essentially in sort of um, soot, you might say. And the stylus was a actually a boar's bristle in, in the first, in, in his very early um, version of his invention. But the point is it created just these, these strips of paper that he called phonautograms, and he never thought of 
reproducing that sound. He just felt that if you he felt that if you learn if you could study the wavy lines that it traced in the lamp black paper, you could almost learn to read it. This is what he hoped that it would in some way it could become a new kind of natural writing, if you see what I mean. Like you could say, "Hello, my name is," and it would make a recognisable shape. And it would practice and learning. You could learn to read sound waves. Now, of course, that isn't possible, but it's still. It was still the first time that airborne sounds had been captured and recorded, even though there was no way of playing them back. Right. And, and, uh, and of course, the, the thing is, you could look at this. I mean, it was visible to the naked eye, and you could tell by having said something in a certain pattern, it would look like whatever, and then you would say something or sing something completely different, and the pattern would be completely different. So even without having heard it played back, because that was impossible, uh, you still knew that somehow what I, the sound I have just created has been recorded on this strip of paper. Uh, I mean, that's, I mean, because at first as I'm reading, I feel, well, how would you even know that you've recorded the sound if you can't listen back to it but just looking at it the visual record of it in a sense was was all the proof you needed to know that you in fact had recorded that particular unique sound in that moment yeah exactly and i think it's partly because he was a a printer and bookseller and printing back then was an incredibly difficult job um you know and i think that's possibly why he became so obsessed with the idea of reading sound because i think it would have been you know it would have been the ultimate labor saving device if it had been that rather than doing all this writing and typeface and all the complicated stuff that a printer had to do back then you could just say something and it was you know immediately readable on a piece of paper you know that's quite a seductive thought mm. but it, it, it never did but it's it's still I'm, I'm glad to say it's still remembered as a really important step and another thing that listeners may have heard about was um Although the sounds at the time were never heard, um, in 2008, um, the first sounds collective, um, basically a a bunch of of brilliant American scientists, managed to reconstruct the sound from one of these phonautograms. And it's absolutely haunting. You can go onto the website, firstsounds.org, and listen to a whole load of these recordings that they've managed to reconstruct by essentially doing... It's not as simple as this sounds, but essentially doing a kind of detailed 3D scan of these of these trace sound waves, and you can hear the sound of what they think is um, Edouard Leon Scott de Martinville himself, the inventor of the phonograph, him singing in 1860. So full right. 17 years before Edison's invention of the phonograph. And, and actually, it, it, and here is one of those recordings, or a, or at least a few moments of it. Uh, here it is. Just a few seconds of of that, and I think uh, from the from the sounds of it, this might be an earlier version because one of the things you tell us in the book is that uh, one of the trickiest things was not having any idea of at what speed uh, these recordings should be played back, and it, it took a long time for them to kind of figure out uh, just at what at what speed to 
replay these old phonograms. Yeah, that's right. And that, and that was the first time they, they thought that was correct and they thought it was a woman singing, but in fact they did a second version, you're totally right, where they realized it had been recorded slower and it's a man's voice doing it. And most so likely the inventor. It's still, it's still, you know, it's putting your ear to 1860, which is just a mind-blowing thought. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. Um, Shortly thereafter in the book, uh, this is what we've just been talking about. The first known instance of actual recorded sound is in Chapter 2 called The Beginning. Chapter 3 is called Oddballs. And this is where the story becomes, in some respects, even more fascinating. And, and for me, at least, even more unexpected. Some of this I had no idea had, had existed or, or certainly had no sense that any of this uh, tied into the kind of the mainstream story of the development of, of the phonograph. Uh, explain to our listeners the sort of characters and the sort of intriguing developments that we find in your chapter titled Oddballs. Well, um, yes, it, you could argue this was a bit of a digression. Um, and essentially it's, it's a summary of various ingenious but rather strange characters who tried to create a talking machine, tried to create um, machines that could make realistic human sounds. Um, and there's some really strange characters. I mean, um, there's this, there, there was one particular one called Kemplin, who wrote the, mechan- the Mechanism of Human Speech with a Description of a Speaking Machine. That was in the 1760s. And that, although was not necessarily the most realistic um, sound ever, but the point is it inspired a whole load of other, um, you know, I think you'd call them rather strange experimental tinkerers to have their own go at making one. And, I, and, I, and possibly the most successful one was made by a rather strange, solitary character called Joseph Faber. Um, he was born in 1800 in Austria, and he was in his 20s when he got hold of Kempler's book on, on, and, and just basically caught this, this bug to create a human-like machine. And he, he, honestly, he, de- he absolutely dedicated his life to it. He spent decades doing it. He, he made one, was rather annoyed at, that it didn't get much, much, it didn't generate much interest, so he destroyed it. Then he made another, again, that kind of repeated. He, by this time, he came to New York City, and he, and he sort of, it didn't make much of an impact, so he destroyed that too. Then in 1845, he was in Philadelphia with a new version, and this was like so two decades of trial and error making this strange machine, which involved him sort of standing at a keyboard, operating a whole load of levers and keys, and using bellows. And he could basically, with lots of practice, he could get this strange machine to speak. And he'd given it a sort of face as well, and you can see a photograph of it, because... One fan of the whole thing was um, uh, Barnum, and Barnum put in T.T. Uh, Barnum got wind of it and put put the euphonia, um, you know, on permanent display in London and then later in America as well. And it, you know, it, but the thing is, it was it was uncanny. It was rather strange. It was quite slow and mournful. I imagine it sounding a bit like a sort of like Eeyore, you know, from the Pooh <laughs> Bear books. But it, it's and, but in a sense, it's just. The reason I find it was connected with this story is that, for a start, 
when the t- when the first record players when Edison's phonograph first came along, it was described in the popular press as a talking machine because that's what it was. It was a machine that could talk, and so for me, part of the history or prehistory of the talking machines were these really strange earlier talking machines where it wasn't trying to record sound it was just trying to create sound to imitate human voices and the other reason i found it of interest is that um alexander graham bell the inventor inventor of the telephone also tried his hand at one of these strange inventions when he was just a teenager with his brother um, melville living in uh, they lived in edinburgh at the time and they tried their hand at creating you know they were inspired and tried to create their own you know strange voice created and, they, and they, they made a wooden tongue with with like three moving parts and rubber cheeks and a tin sort of voice box and it doesn't sound like it did sound particularly well but they could get it to say mama um and apparently used to uh, manage to sort of startle some neighbors in the in the, in the building where they lived <laughs> in edinburgh so it's it's it's, it's a very strange part of the story but as i say it all for me connects in with talking machines. The first wave generation of phonograph users, record players, called them talking machines because they were machines that could talk. And in fact, if you read a lot of the newspaper reports of Edison's invention, there's almost a sense of disappointment at how simple his invention seems. Because it's a talking machine, people are expecting it to have, you know, steam and (laughs) all kinds of buttons and cogs and and complicated things like that but actually it looks like a lathe you know it's just a really simple thing that you turn and cover in tinfoil and um but yeah i I mean honestly it was such a fun part of the story to to delve into because it is so so strange absolutely you know one way to think of it would be uh it's like a, a cuckoo clock you know that little bird comes out of the door and you know that's not the recorded sound of an actual bird it's something created to imitate the sound of a bird and this was a, a machine in a sense constructed to imitate the sound of 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 people talking and uh, of course uh, now we can only wonder what exactly it sounded like but uh, i i am so glad that you in, include this uh, in, in your book uh, for those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Jonathan Scott. We're talking about his book, Into the Groove, the story of sound from tinfoil to vinyl. You, of course, spend plenty of time talking about Thomas Alva Edison and how he manages to ultimately uh, create the phonograph. One of the things you tell us about his background is that he worked for many, many years uh, in the telegraph industry and became, you say, part of a nomadic community of skilled telegraph operators uh, who would take short-term positions in offices across the country. And, and for a long time, he was really anxious to make telegraphs work better. And it sounds like that is a connection to uh, the development of the phonograph. I mean, there is, there's a closer relationship there than we might uh, actually realize. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as well, some versions of the origin story of the phonograph, because as you can imagine with any sort of historical event, there are slight variations in the story. But some versions of the story get him, his original invention being actually, his original eureka not being caused by the uh, telephone diaphragm on the hand, as I described earlier, but actually being one of his telegraph machines. 
He was working on a machine specifically at that time that could take in a message, a Morse code message, imprint it on paper, and then be made to reproduce it later or play it back at different speeds. In fact, one of the inventions he was working on literally looks almost like a pair of record decks. It's fascinating, <laughs> um, but just by a strange coincidence. But this is, so, and anyway, what was I saying? The Eureka moment was that he just was listening to the sound of the perforating needle against the paper, and it reminded him of speech. And some versions have that being the eureka moment, if you see what I mean, including, actually, there was a film in the 1940s starring Spencer Tracy as Edison called Edison the Man, a very um, <laughs> great title. And in that, the eureka moment is in movie land is, is that one. It's him. He, he sees a machine. He listens to the strange noise it's making, and it reminds him of human speech and he comes up with the phonograph. Hmm. And you've mentioned Mr. Bachelor, I think, or a name sort of like that. That was one of his yes, assistants. Yes, that when uh, years later, when he was interviewed about kind of all of this coming about, I remember him quoted in your book as saying something like, "We really didn't know what all of this even meant." I mean, I mean, even they hands-on uh, creating this uh, at certain points did not understand maybe or fully appreciate the immensity of the discovery that uh, they were that they were bringing about with their efforts definitely and I think there's a strong they, they, they really didn't and um, there was also a sense in the laboratory of a slight lack of surprise at that first Eureka moment as well when it when, when the strip phonograph that I described earlier worked there was a kind of general feeling of oh yeah that should work Oh, yeah, it does work. Well, onward, you know. <laughs> and um, they didn't really know what to do with it. And I think it was actually the enthusiasm of certain outsiders. And the reaction, because it was announced to the world in, in the magazine Scientific American, first as a letter um, and then as a more in-depth um, article, both towards the end of 1877. And in that, you really get a sense of the excitement that people have, and like, you know, it really, it becomes like the um, the equivalent of photography was for light. The phonograph becomes for sound. And the way they write about it is that they talk about how the great excitement was you'll be able to record your loved ones. Mm. You know, you'll be able to record people's voices, and then after they're gone, just as a photograph, you can see them after they're gone. So with the phonograph, you'll be able to listen to their voices after they're gone. Right. And that wasn't it wasn't like all the marketing, all the coverage was around that, but that was the sort of emotional hmm. part of the, the, the coverage of, of, of the invention. You quote um, Edward Johnson writing this, the new invention will, uh, will create the profound, profoundest of sensations and liveliest of emotions as it allows humans to once more hear the familiar voices of the dead. Uh, in fact, you, you, a little later in the book, give us a list that Mr. Edison created of 10 potential uses for the phonograph. And what is so striking about that list is that music, reproducing and replaying music, is number four. Uh, that there are all these other potential uh, uses for the phonograph that we have a sense were much more important to Mr. Edison and, of course, have in a sense, fallen away. I mean, now we think of the phonograph as first and foremost about recording and replaying music. Uh, but Edison seems to have really been interested in other possibilities 
uh, ahead of that. Definitely, and there are a few things to say about that. I mean, one thing is that he was, as I said before, so focused on it being profitable and being useful. So he was trying to market the phonograph as an aid to business. And he carried on doing this for years, even after the music business had had taken off. He was still marketing a version of the phonograph aimed at business where he imagined someone in an office could take a, dictate a letter into a photograph and then someone could type it up at a later date or you could actually just send the phonograph. And that, it, you know, people did use it for that. You know, that did work. And for him, he, want, he wanted that to be the focus of business. He did like music. He, 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 did, he, he wasn't that interested in music, but he did like music. But yes... That's partly why it was down on the list, because he felt music was a sort of one of the more frivolous reasons, hmm. and he saw most profit in it as an office aid, a labor-saving device. Right. Um, also, if you listen to the very earliest sounds of either someone recreating or the very rare early tinfoil records that survive, the earliest one is actually from 1878, you can see why music is quite low down on the list. Because obviously back then, the sound quality in that first phonograph was terrible. Right, absolutely. So it, and there are all kinds of things that made it a, a great limitation. <laughs> uh, that That's for sure. In fact, I'm reminded yeah. of uh, one of the most precious mementos that exist from this really early period. And that is uh, the one and only recording in which we hear first the spoken voice of the great Johannes Brahms and then... Brahms playing one of his piano works, but he sounds like he's standing under a waterfall. Uh, I mean, we can scarcely make out the sound. Uh, let's just hear a few moments of this uh, of this Edison cylinder with Brahms himself. And, of course, that, that cylinder might have sounded much better back in 1889 than it does now. But uh, nevertheless, of course, there were limitations. And other limitations, technically speaking, that kept the phonograph from taking off as Edison had hoped. And your book tells us that Edison actually uh, tilted away from the phonograph towards the light bulb. I mean, uh, he really lost interest. Uh and into the void, <laughs> into that vacuum, steps Alexander Graham Bell and his Volta Laboratory uh, to try to uh, advance this new technology. Tell us briefly about Mr. Bell and the Volta Laboratory and why this is such an important chapter in the story. Well, you're totally right. Yeah, um, the, phone, the original tinfoil phonograph was a wonder of the age, but it wasn't immediately very useful. So... It didn't fade into obscurity, but not much was done with it, and he was more profitably engaged with inventing the light bulb. So it just sort of went into a slight lull. And as I mentioned earlier, Alexander Graham Bell later, you know, wrote about how he was actually quite frustrated that he hadn't come up, come up with the phonograph. He just felt it was such an obvious step. So in the 1880s, he and uh, some associates formed what was known as the Volta Lab, in, or Volta Associates, they called themselves, in Washington, D.C., they based themselves. And this is, in ways, one of my favorite periods of the story. It's, they, they basically, for several years, 
experimented with almost every conceivable method for recording sound onto objects. They, they experimented with disc-shaped records, with cylindrical-shaped records. One of the first things they did, actually, was take one of Edison's own phonographs, the original phonograph, and simply cover it with wax and then see how well that worked. But, um, and the other, so, so it's such a fascinating story because they tried so many strange things. They tried recording with, using magnetism. They tried recording using light and in photographic emulsions. And if you go, um, this is another thing I really recommend listeners to do, but again, you could go to firstsounds.org or go to the uh, Library of Congress website because you can listen to some of these very experimental recordings, and they're absolutely fascinating. They're on card, wax, brass, glass, they're, they're, and they're so strange. Like mm. this wonderful one, which is just someone going, ba, ra, me, ta, over and over again. And here it is. <laughs> The, the word barometer over and over again. And here's another in which we hear someone doing lip trills and counting. There's something almost playful about that, and we have this sense of amazing discovery in the moment. I mean, it is like we are back in time in a way that is absolutely thrilling. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Yes. I just think I became slightly obsessed with Volta. <laughs> because, yeah, I mean, some of these, these ways of recording were so experimental that they couldn't even play them back, so it's quite likely that some of those sounds they never heard again. Mm. So we're, it's literally like we're just putting our ear to their laboratory door mm. and listening to them and all their strange experiments. Right, and the, 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 the spark of discovery, the joy in the moment, uh, it's just amazing. It is is a, a visceral thrill uh, to be taken back like that. Well, of course, Mr. Edison re-enters the fray, and uh, your book also recounts how uh, he felt that this was not a toy. He was resistant to certain possibilities in terms of how it would be used. Should it be a coin-operated uh, machine in amusement parks or whatever? Ultimately, of course, it finds its way uh, into many homes. And uh, and thanks to uh, the developments of, of others from other places, including one Mr. Emil Berliner, uh, the, the technology advances in spectacular ways. Uh, and it changes everything. And ultimately, your book goes on to tell us about the development of the 78 and ultimately the long playing record. Uh, it's an incredible story. At the outset, did you realize what a fascinating story this would be to explore? Um, no, I wouldn't say I did. I, 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 think, I think, though, actually, it was, it, it was sort of getting into the Volta story that made me that sort of really excited me. But I also, I, I felt so lucky because I visited the Library of Congress and met some amazing people there and saw some of these incredibly rare, strange discs. And as well, it's such a, it's such a wonderful time to be interested in early sound because if I tried to write this book 30 years ago, it, I, you know, it would have been so much harder. But now, thanks to the work of some brilliant people, you can go and listen to so you can you can literally go and listen to so much music from the 1890s, which was a really fascinating period as the sort of the music business took off, you know, and 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 sound engineers became more and more skilled at recording sound in, a, in and and you can just go and listen to them right now, 
and it's just it just means that oh it's just so inspiring to mm. be able to to listen to some of these things in a way that just if you if, if i'd only been able to read about them it would not have been the same mm. so i feel very lucky to to have had that at my fingertips right um well, I feel lucky to have been able to read your fascinating and wonderful and entertaining book, Into the Groove, oh, The Story of Sound from Tinfoil to Vinyl, published by Bloomsbury Sigma. We have just scratched the surface. Jonathan Scott, the author. Jonathan Scott, thank you so much for writing this wonderful book and for joining me today on The Morning Show. What a pleasure to speak oh, with you. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And now we're going to sample some noteworthy recordings, including some of the earliest recordings ever made. And we begin with that talented Frenchman mentioned in the interview, Edouard Léon Scott de Martinville. In 1857, he patented the first device able to record sound, the phonograph. But this was a device that could only record sound. It had no means whatsoever to play those sounds back. And it was not until the 21st century that scientists were able to develop the means to play back these early primitive recordings. Here is the earliest Martinville recording that is preserved. It captures a few seconds of the sound of a tuning fork. This is from 1859. From 1860 comes what is believed to be the earliest recording of a human voice. When this recording was first played back, it sounded like this. As first played back, this seemed to be the recording of a female singer. When audio engineers looked more closely at this recording and made certain adjustments, they'd achieved what they believed was closer to the correct playback speed, and it was unmistakably the voice of a male singing. And it is widely believed that this is actually the inventor himself, Edouard Léon Scott de Martinville, singing a few measures of this French song. Martinville's invention, the phonograph, was patented in 1857. It was 20 years later before Thomas Alva Edison invented his phonograph, the first device able to record and playback sound. The oldest known surviving Edison cylinder comes from 1878. This was at a point in time when Edison was anxious to try and sell the phonograph to the general public, but it is something that took off very, very slowly. In this cylinder, 
Edison, among other things, recites Mary Had a Little Lamb, which was the very, very first recording that Edison ever made on a tinfoil recording that no longer exists. Also on this recording is a cornet solo, and we hear a higher-pitched voice reciting Old Mother Hubbard. It is believed that that higher voice also belongs to Thomas Alva Edison. He was having fun and trying to demonstrate to the public the versatility of this as-yet misunderstood invention. From 1878, recordings made in St. Louis, Missouri, by Thomas Alva Edison on his brand new invention, the phonograph. As Jonathan Scott recounts in his book Into the Groove, Thomas Alva Edison was not musically inclined and does not seem to have been particularly interested in how the phonograph could record music. Instead, Edison seems to have been much more excited by the possibility of the phonograph recording and preserving human speech, and in particular, preserving the voices of noteworthy human beings. The earliest U.S. president whose voice is recorded, is our 23rd president, Benjamin Harrison. Here he is for a few precious seconds in a recording made back in 1889. We can scarcely make out a single word, but the voice is Benjamin Harrison. As president of the United States, I was president of the first American Congress in Washington, D.C., that with God help, our two countries shall continue to live side by side in peace and prosperity. Much clearer is a recording made in 1892 by the man who was both our 22nd and 24th president, Grover Cleveland. We can understand nearly every word. Never be the judgment of this people. 
We have recordings of the voices of every U.S. president from Benjamin Harrison onward through Grover Cleveland, William McKinley, Teddy Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and so on. We also have recordings of other heads of state from this era, including a few tantalizing seconds of the voice of Queen Victoria. We can scarcely make out a single word through the background roar, but it is a precious memento all the same. And beyond heads of state, there are early recordings that capture the voices of other noteworthy people, such as this precious recording from 1890 that preserves the voice of the legendary Florence Nightingale, the woman who essentially invented modern nursing. When I am no longer, even and We also have recordings of noteworthy writers and poets. Among the most precious is this recording of poet Walt Whitman, made sometime before his death in 1892. Center of equal daughter, equal son, all, all alike and good. Grow and young or old, strong, ample, fair, enduring, capable, yet a Romeo with the earth, with freedom, law, and love. Listening to the earliest recordings made of music can certainly be an exercise in frustration because of the serious technical limitations of that still primitive technology. But there are cases in which we listen with great pleasure all the same, especially when we're talking about a recording of monumental importance historically. Such is the case with the recordings made early in the 20th century by the great violin virtuoso Pablo de Sarasate, a composer for whom Wieniawski composed his second violin concerto, Edouard Lalot composed his symphony Espagnol, and Max Bruch his famous Scottish fantasy. This was someone who knew nearly every important composer of the 19th century, and history comes alive as we listen to him playing this music of Johann Sebastian Bach. Thank you. 
Generally speaking, the earliest recordings made by professional singers are disappointing. It would seem that even most capable singers did not have voices of sufficient power and thrust to be vibrantly present in those primitive early recordings. At the turn of the century, the greatest professional singers in the world had no interest whatsoever in making phonograph recordings. But then came an Italian tenor who changed everything, and I'm talking, of course, about Enrico Caruso. He possessed a voice of exceptional power and brilliance, which was able to make its presence fully known even in this primitive technology. Moreover, Caruso seems to have had the right personality. He had an ease in the recording studio that the typical professional musician did not. The combination was irresistible, 
and a superstar was born. Caruso made his first studio recordings in 1902. Perhaps the most famous of them, a recording of the aria Vesti la Giuba from Leoncavallo's opera I Pagliacci. Caruso would go on to make a total of three different studio recordings of this aria, 1902, 1904, and 1907. Those later recordings made actually with orchestral accompaniment. But I think it is especially interesting to hear this very first recording that Caruso made, one of the recordings that changed the world. It was with his first recordings in 1902 that Enrico Caruso almost single-handedly revolutionized the way the world looked at the gramophone. But we need to turn the clock back even a little earlier than that for someone else who did groundbreaking work. It was a man by the name of Lionel Mapleson, and he was the librarian at the Metropolitan Opera. In 1900, he bought an Edison phonograph. And sometime during the next year, it occurred to him that he could use this phonograph to record actual performances at the Metropolitan Opera. His first efforts were made setting up the phonograph in the prompter's box at the edge of the stage, but for various reasons, these recordings seem not to have been at all successful. At the start of the next season, he moved the phonograph above the stage in the so-called fly system and attached a really huge recording horn. And from there, Mapleson was able to capture some of the greatest opera stars of the day live in performance on the stage of the Met. Here's one of my favorite examples of a Mapleson cylinder. It captures a portion of a 1901 performance of Meyerbeer's Les Huguenots, the Huguenots, and the soprano aria Au Beau Pays. The soprano in question, Suzanne Adams. What I especially love about this Mabelson cylinder recording is that we actually hear the sound of the audience in the Met erupting in ferocious applause. It is as though we are there. Thank you. 
What is especially precious about the so-called Mapleson cylinders is that, first of all, in some cases, it is the only recorded glimpse we have of certain significant singers, like the legendary tenor Jean de Reske. Also, it is the only way that we can really hear what these opera singers sounded like in actual performance versus in the stifling artificial confines of the recording studio, which left the typical singer quite uncomfortable and also forced them to sing most of their arias at too rapid a tempo because there was otherwise no way to fit a given aria onto the limited space of a given cylinder. In these Mapleson cylinders, for as difficult as it is to hear the music through the roar of background noise, we are hearing actual singers on the stage of the Met doing what they did best. From 1903, here is a portion of the immolation scene from Wagner's Gerdammerung, sung by one of the greatest singers of that era, Lillian Nordica. <laughs> And as an interesting point of contrast, let's listen to another excerpt from that same immolation scene from Wagner's Gerardamerung, a performance from the Metropolitan Opera, but from 1966. The occasion, the historic gala concert sung before the old Met was torn down. The Brunhilde on this occasion, the great Swedish soprano Birgit Nielsen. Birgit Nielsen live in performance in 1966. The so-called Mapleson cylinders from the Metropolitan Opera were primarily recorded between 1901 and 1903. 
in almost every instance, they represent mere fragments of arias, duets, trios, or ensembles. And in many cases, the sound quality is all but unlistenable. And of course, some of the Mapleson cylinders are lost altogether. It is believed that Mr. Mapleson made a total of 140 opera recordings from the Met. He rather abruptly ceased this activity in 1903, and we do not know why, if objections were raised by management or singers, or if he simply lost interest. Interestingly, in 1909, Mapleson began making recordings again, but not of opera performances, but rather of his own family, including his own children. Here's a sample of one of those recordings made with his children. We hear in the background the sound of singing. It is unclear whether this recording was made while a performance was going on. More likely, this is a recording that was made on top of something he had already recorded in the opera house. Either way, it is an intriguing look at how the phonograph was often used at this point in time. Lionel Mapleson and his children having fun with their Edison phonograph. Well, we could do this all day, but we need to finish up, and we're going to do so with a historic recording made in 1910, the first studio recording made of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. We know that it was made for the Odeon Company, but we do not know the orchestra involved or the conductor on the podium leading this performance. Here is a little bit of this historic moment in recording history.
And just to make it clear just how far we have come with the technology of recorded sound, here is Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, as recorded in 1975 by the Vienna Philharmonic under the direction of Carlos Kleiber. Thank you. 